We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to have you today. Uh, We started a few weeks ago looking at a story in the Old Testament, uh, the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a great king. And uh, God put a great mission on his heart. And so we've been unpacking this story and and working through it. So uh, what I want to do is encourage you, if you have your scriptures with you this morning, go to the table of contents, find the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, and uh, turn to chapter 2, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at that part this morning. Or if you have your digital device, you know, pull that out and uh, don't check your social media status or anything, but uh, try to stay on that Bible app, all right, for more than five seconds. Uh, but uh, definitely look at this story. This is a story that we want to not only understand, but we want to root our lives and ourselves within. So that's why it's so important. Uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a king. And uh, he had a responsibility of tasting the king's wine and, and sampling his food, uh, kind of like what my wife does whenever we go out to eat, but uh, only uh, trying to keep her from being, uh, trying to keep the king from being poisoned, whereas my wife, she's just trying to, you know, uh, hedge in on my food anyway, but uh, it's a very important responsibility. And uh, I was thinking about what it would be like to be Nehemiah, to be a cupbearer in the king's court. There's a proverb in uh, chapter 21, verse 1, that says that a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. That is such an incredible verse to think about. Because I think when you're the cupbearer to the king, you may not assume that this man is just an instrument. He's just channeled water in the Lord's hand. But that's exactly what this king is. Now, Nehemiah, uh, in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 1, prays that God would give him success in what he was about to ask in the presence of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Uh, He was expected to convey joy in the king's presence regardless of how he felt. But he was deeply distraught at the trouble and disgrace that was in Jerusalem with the temple, with the walls, with everything laying in ruin. Uh, He was expected to cover his mouth, as was everybody else in the king's presence. Because if he had halitosis, if he had bad breath, you know, you didn't want to offend the king. And so everybody had to kind of like just keep quiet, keep your mouth covered. He was expected to be silent unless spoken to. He was forbidden of bringing any kind of personal concerns or requests or matters forth to this king. And were he to go off script, minimally, maybe thrown in a dungeon, but at worst, executed. I thought about this. This is a little freebie. This is an aside. But I think a lot of times when we come before God as king, we have a prayer mindset of of that of a cupbearer. We're intimidated. We're fearful. We don't think that God's going to be inclined uh, to our prayers. Uh, You know, we're we're reluctant to 
entrust whatever anxieties we have or worries we have to him. We can have this psychology of a cupbearer. But the reality is the gracious hand of God, of our God, was on this man, Nehemiah. And when he went to the king, the king compassionately inquired about Nehemiah's sadness. It's like there's something wrong with you. It can only be sickness of heart. He patiently listened as Nehemiah described the trouble and disgrace that God's people were in back in Jerusalem. He willingly released Nehemiah to go 700 miles away to rebuild the city of his fathers and God. He agreed to Nehemiah's timeline, his request authoring, uh, authorizing safe passage, his request for timbers and resources to rebuild the wall from timbers in the king's forest. The king even set his own officers and infantry and cavalry in order to go with Nehemiah for his security and protection. Artaxerxes was channeled water. And I was thinking, you know, we're to come before the throne of the king of the heaven and earth with confidence, knowing that he, he listens, that his ears are open and his eyes see our trouble. We're to have not a cupbearer mentality, but a servant's mentality before the king of the universe, right? Whenever we endeavor to do something significant for God, one of the things we learn in this story is that men will stand in the way. You think there's roses and everything's going to be wonderful because you want to serve God and you have that intention in your heart. There will be people that will become obstacles to you. And the biggest hurdle that Nehemiah probably thought he was going to face and probably the most existential threat to his existence was King Artaxerxes. But he was just channeled water in the hands of the king of heaven. The second hurdle, though, that Nehemiah runs into was Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah, who was an Ammonite official. These uh, regional governors, the minute that they heard that somebody was coming to seek the welfare of God's people in his city, uh, they were greatly displeased. You know, don't we often look for people to be pleased with everything we do? We want to uh, earn the applause of others. Well, these leaders were greatly displeased. Not a little bit, greatly. Nehemiah 2.10. Uh, there will always be the Sanballats and the Tobias in every age. There will always be people in your midst and mine who love the darkness and hate the light because their deeds are evil. And they will oppose you or me. They will oppose God on every front. Anyone that seeks the spiritual interest of God's kingdom, they will oppose. It's foolish for us to think. Let's just calibrate our expectations right now. It's foolish to think that the enemies of God will just suddenly begin to endorse God's kingdom. What's needed now more than ever are men and women, people like us, people like you, that will suffer the displeasure of men in order to carry out what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. What's needed now more than ever is not people that will conform to the pleasures of those who are in authority and power, but who will conform to the pleasures of the good, pleasing, perfect will of God and serve him as a first principle. And so there's always going to be regional authorities and powers and, and whatnot, and, and that posed a major hurdle to Nehemiah. And these individuals escalate 
as we go through the story. So we'll talk about facing opposition and, and, and things in the, in the coming weeks. Hurdle number three was more grave to Nehemiah. And this is perhaps the most shocking hurdle of all. That, that God's work when it attempted isn't just resisted from without by outside, outside authorities and powers. It's often resisted from within the very people and places that stand to most benefit. Nehemiah's greatest obstacle, Nehemiah 2.16, was the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials. And what you had in that city was you had many of these people in this group. They had put their own security, their own affluence, uh, their own well-being before that of God's people and nation. And the status quo was this, that as long as you could keep Sanballat and Tobiah smiling, as long as you could please them, as long as you didn't make waves and uh, you know, your family would enjoy protection from them, affluence, and privilege, at least more than what you'd have otherwise. There is these people within that had made kind of like a deal with the devil, so to speak. They would give lip service to God's people. They didn't want to show themselves, but they were really hypocritical about this. They would say, yeah, we care about our city. We care about people's trouble and disgrace, but their hearts were divided because they were really invested in the loyalty to these power brokers. I love that reading that we just did. It said, don't look to the powerful. They will not be of much help to you. And these folks had put all their eggs in the basket of human power. Now, there is such an important lesson at every, like, break in the story. To truly please God, more often than not, means to suffer the displeasure of people. Have you already experienced that? To really serve God often means to suffer the displeasure of others. The Bible says, for example, that men... They often want to please the ladies. Husbands, they want to please their wives. Women, they want to please the men. Wives want to please their husbands. And we know that parents want to please their kids. Now, kids, not so much. You know, their parents, I don't know. Uh, but, but parents, they want to keep the peace and keep everybody happy. Nobody crying, nobody unhappy, nobody sad, right? I want you to know also that leaders at every level from king to president, all the way down to local, right? Do you know what leaders most want to do? They want to please their constituents. That's what they want to do. It doesn't matter what your party affiliation is or isn't. Uh, I, I'm only affiliated with uh, God's kingdom. But, but whatever that affiliation is, leaders want to please those. That's part of maintaining the status quo, is to please those who are holding you in power. And so leaders are perfectly willing to sell out the well-being, the true well-being, even though they're constituents, the true well-being of God's people, even sell out the estate of God's glory and kingdom in order to earn the applause, the pleasure of men. That's what leaders more often than not do. All the leaders that we have, it's kind of a first principle, not to serve God, but to please people. And they're vested in the status quo. Now, in Galatians 1.10, the Apostle Paul was accused 
of being a people pleaser. And he says, are we trying to persuade people or God on this matter? Am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I think that's the reality of the matter. That if we're trying to please people, whoever they may be, within, without, we're probably not being good servants of Christ. And and Nehemiah understood that, and and we need to internalize that, I think. Where are the God-pleasers today? Especially those who have status and authority and power or in leadership, you know. Where are the God-pleasers, the the husbands and wives leading families? Where are the God-pleasers in the church, in our schools, in our uh, places of our institutions, right? Where are the God-pleasers? And and what will it take for the God-pleasers of this generation to rise up? These are questions that this text raises for us, this story raises for us. It's very sad, but worth pointing out that when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he has to keep his plan secret. He has to maintain a very low profile. And so he sets out by night with a single animal. He's not going to have an entourage. He's not going to make a big scene here. And he, he travels around the city perimeter and he inspects the different gates and the different sections of the wall that had been destroyed. And he's making some calculations and developing more specific plans. The Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, all these people, they had no clue where Nehemiah was or what he was doing or what he was planning. You know, sometimes you want to play checkers, but you got to play chess. you got to conceal your strategy because the enemies of God, even from within, will oppose. And, And Nehemiah, I think, is playing chess here in a way. And he's planning and watching and developing uh, very methodically what needs to happen with these folks and with the city. Uh, What should you do when those that you're wanting to serve in Christ uh, most oppose the work that you're attempting? Nehemiah is someone that we can look at and say, well, what did he do? How did he go about it? I remember, uh, and this is not a lakeside reflection at all. I think Uh, At Lakeside, we've had exemplary leaders that have been very agreeable to the plans and dreams and and directions. And and like we've got, but when I first started ministry, I've I've been in the church my whole life. So I've been around church leaders my whole life in a half a dozen congregations, including ones that our family attended to ones that I served as preaching. I always had this in my imagination. I always imagined that church leaders would be on fire for God's kingdom, that they'd be the ones leading out and taking the initiative and doing the heavy lifting and that they would all be on the same page. But sadly, that's not always the case in churches. And it's not always the case in families and and other circles of leadership. Those in position of authority most often use their their power to protect the status quo. They always talk big, they always promise big, but when they get in and they have the power and authority, they maintain the status quo, and then we're disappointed, right? Those with authority most often want to protect the status quo. And you go in and, 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 and you see the trouble, you see the disgrace, and, and you, you can wait on leaders all you want. And you can hope that even church leaders, for example, 
that they'll dare to dream again, that their hearts will be set afire for the things of God, that, that some flame of God from heaven will fall on them in the middle of the night and things will just magically change. You can desire that they begin drawing up plans and suddenly wanting to act boldly and courageously and, and endeavoring to subdue the earth for God's glory and, and that they'll suffer the displeasure of their wives. You know, a lot of times leaders, you know, they go home and they have a meeting, they consult with their wife and they come back and they got a different opinion the next time around or whatever it is. You know, those who created the status quo, those who maintain the status quo, those who have a vested interest in the status quo, they get their security, their identity, their salary, their status, their protection, their affluence from the status quo. Those who have a vested interest in the status quo of trouble and disgrace, they never lead the change. Do you realize that they never lead the change? More often than not, it takes a catalytic leader, someone like Nehemiah, that will come and upset the apple cart and ask questions and point things out and be a catalyst. Uh, the other night, Laura and I saw a movie called Running the Bases, which is a Christian film. And it's really awesome. It's a really good movie. I encourage you to see it. It might give you a very concrete idea of what it would look like to be a servant of God instead of a pleaser of people in this day and age. But it's about a coach. And, uh, and this coach does things uh, out of service to God. And he's labeled a disruptor. And uh, that's a positive term, but it also sounds kind of like has a negative connotation to it. But I thought... That is a great word, disruptor. Nehemiah is a disruptor. That's why he's being opposed by everyone in Jerusalem, including people from within. When I first started ministry, I remember uh, thinking that I so badly wanted to be led. I knew I was younger, and I was, I was like, where are these men that are like, going to set the tone and set the pace and, and, and have the things of the kingdom at their heart? And I was like, I wanted to be led. But it wasn't long before God convicted me that if I kept waiting for that to happen, that things were going to continue to, to die a slow death. And I became convicted of the fact that I either needed to lead or let things continue to die. Early on, somebody gave me some unconventional advice, a seasoned minister. He says, you know, sometimes it's easier, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. And what this person was saying to me in, in not so many words was, if God has authorized the mission, then lead. If God has laid something on your heart and you're convinced that it's of God, like unspiritual people are not going to lead in that thing. You have to lead with what God has shown you. And so if it's something that needs to be preached, preach it. And if it's something that needs to be taught, teach it. And if it's someone that needs to be evangelized, if it's the one that the 99 is neglecting, then go evangelize. And if there's tough issues in people's lives and in the life of your church that need to be pastor, then go pastor those issues. And if there's hard work to be done, put your shoulder to the work and serve. And if there's something that needs to be built, by golly, build it, right? Life is short and the task is grave. There's trouble, there's disgrace. And if we wait around, who else is going to disrupt if not us? Nehemiah, I just look at him and he's a spiritual leader. He's not going off in the flesh. He's not going off half-cocked. 
He's prayed, he's fasted, he's gone to the word, he has clarity of what God's asking of him. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, all authority, you know, on heaven and earth has been given to me, right? Baptize, teach, I'm with you always. It's like, we have permission. We have our mission. We have clarity. Let's set our hands to the task. So Nehemiah didn't wait for permission from the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials. In fact, what he does is he goes to these individuals and he sets a tone of action orientation. He says to them, hey, you see the trouble that we're in. Sometimes people don't see the obvious. Uh, Sometimes we just have to say, just look at what's going on in your family, in your marriage, in your world, in your school, in your government, in your workplace, in the world. Just open your, like, look, it's right here staring us in the face. Call a spade a spade. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem is in ruins. Its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall. Why does he say come? Because he's already on mission. He's already in motion. He's already been taking steps and drawing up plans. He's setting the tone. Most people, they want to go with a leader. They're not going to lead out themselves. Somebody has to take the first, come, let's rebuild so that we'll no longer be a disgrace. That's kind of interesting. You mean I don't have to continue being a disgrace? We don't have to continue in this trouble? We don't have to continue with the status quo? The status quo can be broken? It can be disrupted? Are you, come, let's, let's break the status quo together. Let's build together. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been upon me and what the king had said to me. When you begin acting according uh, to the things of God, there's a kind of testimony where the dominoes start falling and the water starts getting channeled. And it's a tremendously encouraging thing to people to say, hey, this is what the gracious hand of God's already been doing. But I mentioned uh, sometimes we need to call a spade a spade. I think it was Max Dupree who said that the first job of a leader is to define reality. Uh, Jesus had a way of doing that. Defining reality. And the way he did it, it's not unlike what Nehemiah does. Jesus said to his disciples, open your eyes and look, right? You can see the trouble and disgrace right in front of you. The masses are harassed. People are helpless. They're without hope. They're without God in this world. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for him to raise up the workers, for the workers to build, for the status quo to be broken. May God raise up the disruptors, if you will, the holy disruptors. Nehemiah's first hurdle, he thought the biggest one was going to be King Artaxerxes. His second hurdle was these evil governors, Sanballat and Tobiah, the Ammonite. The third hurdle was the Jews and priests and nobles and officials and those in uh, positions of authority and status right there within Jerusalem. But if there's another hurdle, a fourth hurdle was the exiles themselves. Would they be responsive to Nehemiah and the vision? A lot of people, I think, have a fundamental understanding of what true leadership is. Uh, and, And Nehemiah is a true leader. He is a, not just a spiritual leader, he's a great leader. But a lot of times it's assumed that a leader will come in and do the work. A leader will come in and be the fixer, the solver, and that everything will rest on that one leader's shoulders, right? 
It's assumed that great leaders will do the work themselves. And when I started ministry, I'll be honest with you, I'll confess, that I had that kind of view of leadership. And I quickly realized that the elders and the congregation were perfectly content for me to do the work of ministry. In fact, they were perfectly content also to raise expectations for me to do the work of the ministry. They were happy to hold me accountable, and they loved it when I submitted monthly reports of all of my activities. Uh, they loved it that I lived in a fishbowl, otherwise known as a parsonage, which was right next to the church parsonage. And people would drive by night and day monitoring my activities to see if I was on mission. If the church lights were on and the parsonage lights were on, questions were raised. You know, you should be over there whenever the lights are on for whatever's going on. And boy, you know, if the doorbell rang or the phone rang and it wasn't answered, people want to know, where were you when I came by? Or where were you when I called? It took years for me to realize that truly great leaders don't just do the work of ministry. They give the work of ministry back to the people. And so I remember once when I discovered this aha moment, I remember once uh, when the elders were evaluating me, I remember I asked them to evaluate each other, you know, on the same basis of, the, of some of the things they were raising. Once when they asked for a report, I said, I think this would be a great thing for all of us to do. And I asked them to report each month what they'd done for the kingdom. They never asked for another report again. It was awesome. But, uh, but I'm very serious about this. In Ephesians 4, you remember the I Love My Church series that we just did? The church must learn to build itself up in love with each part doing its work. Nehemiah, his fourth hurdle was, could he get the people themselves to do the work? Could he get the people themselves responding to their own trouble and their own disgrace, doing the work themselves? Could he get that kind of a, you know, a ball in motion, so to speak, in Jerusalem? But the church isn't me, it's we. And Nehemiah realized it's, it's not me, it's got to be a we. And when Nehemiah goes to the people, a very beautiful thing happens. Now, you got to promise me that you're going to read Nehemiah chapter 3. And you're going to look at this story sometime this week. you got to do it. Nehemiah 3. I mean, it's just a beautiful picture of how God's people respond. Nehemiah goes to them at the end of chapter 2, verse 18. He tells them, that the gracious hand of the Lord has been upon me. He told them about the king, giving them permission and authority and resources. And they said, let's start rebuilding. I love that. The people said, let's build this thing. Let's do it. I remember uh, when I was uh, at Berlin Christian Church, there was an elder that would always confide to me. He says, you know, I've always dreamed of like, remodeling and, and addressing kind of the facility issues in our church. And, and the, the church building had fallen in very serious decline. I mean, in just about every way. I mean, plaster was falling off the walls and stuff was falling off the, the ceiling in their service. And, I mean, there wasn't a piece of carpet in there that wasn't frayed. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't a God-honoring situation. And this guy, I finally just said, let's do it. <laughs> like, what are you waiting for? Like, what more permission do you need? You're an elder. Like, do it, you know. But it's an incredible thing when people finally get it and they say, let's start rebuilding. And it says their hands were strengthened to do this good work. Their hands were strengthened. They didn't find strength within themselves. God gave them an exponential 
uh, margin of energy and, and, and strength to do what God had set before them. You know, there's nothing that makes the enemies of God quake more than when the people of God are activated. Every member doing its part, every person, every family, every household taking up the work of God. There's nothing that makes the enemies of God melt quicker than the church building itself up in love. Every part, every member, every leader, everyone doing their part, and God strengthening our hands in the process. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official, now we got a third turkey, you know, Geshem the Arab, whoever that is. When they heard about all this, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, they mocked and despised us. And they said, what is it that you guys are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, that's going to become a very grave and serious accusation that they're going to have to deal with later on. But they're escalating their rhetoric, they're escalating their attack, and that's exactly what we should expect the enemies of God to do. But Nehemiah says to them, the God of heavens is the one who is going to give us success. Whether you like it or not, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Uh, we are his servants and we will start building. But you have no share or right or historic claim in Jerusalem. He basically tells them, when this all, when all the dust settles, you all are going to be on the wrong side of history. Because our God is going to prevail. We will build, we are building, and either get on the bus or like get run over by the bus. It's like we're doing this thing. There's a conviction and clarity there, isn't there, to the faith that Nehemiah had? In Nehemiah chapter 3, and this is what's so awesome about chapter 3, the people of God are mobilized. Like the whole city, all of them. You had officials who represented people from the Persian Empire that were there to, uh, you know, be emissaries or whatever to the Persian Empire. You had Jews who were citizens, many of them survivors of uh, the captivity. You had nobles and elders who headed up important families. You had guild workers. You had merchants that specialized in gold or perfume or different things. You had scribes that were experts in the law, and they studied the scriptures and would teach the people. You had priests that ministered in the temple and, uh, and ministered to the people of God. And all of them are activated in chapter 3 in different ways. And what we see in chapter 3 and what we see in life is that the work itself exposes the real character and heart of God's people. The work itself exposes the spiritual reality. Here's what I mean. Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1. The high priest Elishib and his fellow priests begin rebuilding the sheep gate. Are they in or are they out? They're in. They're the first to respond. The high priest, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. I mean... Talk about somebody that probably should get their hands dirty. It's the guy that, you know, ministers the, the sacraments or whatever, right? And all of his clan, the high priests, they set an example. And they carry the stones and stack the stone and, and use the mortar and do what they are supposed to do. History tells us that the great kings of Samaria, one of the reasons they were great is that they would carry their own bricks. 
They would carry bricks to build their temple. They would carry bricks to build whatever needed to be built. They were right in amongst the people doing the work. And that's what made them so great. Now, in stark contrast, in Nehemiah 3.5, it tells us that the nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. You see, something's being exposed there. Uh, They weren't just being lazy. They were vested in the status quo. They were looking to their own interest, not to the interest of God or his people. And it showed when the work began. Now, in all, archaeologists estimate that there was maybe one and a half to two miles of wall that had to be rebuilt. And there was different sections and different gates. Some of the sections were 250 feet long, you know, almost the length of a football field. The longest section was 1,500 feet, right? Five football fields long. There was a lot of work that had to be done. In all, Nehemiah formed uh, 42 teams of workers. So you can go through and count how many teams there are, but uh, 42 teams of workers. Everyone was needed. Everyone, each part doing their work. The priests did the work. The great high priest himself did the work. Go through the list and just, it's amazing. The men of Jericho, the sons of Hassanah, the Tekoites, the goldsmiths, even the perfumers. You know, if ever there was somebody that you might perceive as being a delicate, whatever, you know, the perfumers were getting their hands dirty. The Levites, the temple servants, you know, the the merchants themselves of gold and perfume, all these different things. A district leader, there's an official who rebuilt a section of the wall with the help of his daughters. You know, when the little kids, the little girls are carrying stones, nobody really has an excuse at that point, right? The little girls are stacking stones. His daughters are helping. You know, maybe they're older. But, but many of these teams consisted of family units. Boy, you get families and marriages and people working together. You know, for the things of God, watch out because that's what revival looks like. The work being given back to the people and people lifting the, you know, God gave them the strength to do what needed to be done. But everybody was vested. Rebuilding different sections of the wall. Now, a lot of families rebuilt the section of the wall that was nearest and behind their home. Makes total sense. You know, you want to make sure the wall behind your house is very strong if anything goes down. So, People had ownership and they had a stake in what was being done. They wanted to resolve this trouble and disgrace. Now, not everybody did equal work. You read along and some were extremely zealous and and some were early adopters. and, And boy, isn't it awesome when you have those pace setter types and they just get right down to business and their hands are dirty and they're stacking stones and they're showing everybody else you know, motivation and commitment and hard work. And, they're, you know, it's like, wow, they, we haven't even got up and had breakfast yet and they've already got a section of the wall done. I mean, you had some people like that and they're mentioned in chapter 3. You had some people who were late adopters who started the work only after they saw if other people were going to do it. Like, am I the only one here? Like, is, is anybody else? Like, have you seen the lights go on? Is anybody stacking anything yet? You know, there's late adopters. And, uh, but I think in Nehemiah 3, You know, not everybody did equal work, but everybody kind of made equal sacrifice as they were enabled by God. And and I think Nehemiah 3, if there's a a picture of the church in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, I think it's Nehemiah chapter 3. Everybody as a body, as a unit coming together 
to do this extraordinary thing for God. In the days of Nehemiah, people rebuilt walls with stones. They were doing something physical. Now, that's just in the beginning. Uh, if you thought the stones were heavy lifting, wait till the men and the, the, the families sit down and try to lead their families and lead their Jewish society. That's, the, that's where the real, the spiritual is infinitely harder than the physical. Anybody can stack stones, but there's, there's a work that has to be done that we're going to get into that is even harder than just building. Churches think building buildings is the greatest and, and it's the most visible in the heart. No. It's the kind of families and the kind of marriages and the kind of people we're building. That's where the hard work is. But we have, uh, you know, in, in the Old Testament, in, in these days, you know, the, the stones that they were to use were badly damaged by fire. And they'd become brittle. Do you use these stones? Do you discard these stones? There was so much rubble that had built up, and you'd have to, to clear away things to get down to the, the, the foundation, right? So that you were building on something that was solid. And there was a lot of, there's just an irresistible metaphor here for a preacher like me. You know, when God builds his church, how does he build it? You know, he builds it on the surest foundation it can be built on. The church is built on the word and promises of God himself that have stood for centuries. The same promises that Nehemiah built and, and, and created revival around in the days of Nehemiah are the same promises that are there for us today, right? The chief cornerstone of the church that everything is built upon is the living word himself, Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no sure foundation. And, and everything has to be cleared away to get down to the to brass tacks, to get down to that foundation, right? If we're going to build anything that's going to matter. And what materials does Christ build his church with? You know, a lot of people think bricks and mortar. But no, the church is built of living stones, is what Peter tells us. And what are the living stones? The living stones are people themselves. But they're not just any people. The living stones have been damaged and maybe are even brittle. But they've been redeemed and repurposed by the Spirit of God and therefore they are fit to do what God requires. That's the church. These stones were physically brittle but because they were being built on the right foundation and, and God was building it, they were sufficient. for. And it's the same thing with the church. We may be broken, we may be damaged, we may be bruised, but when God builds something, that's what he uses. And that's a picture of the church. And, and who does the work of building? Did Nehemiah do all the building? He did work, but he gave the work back to the people. Now in the church, God certainly gives apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists but he gives those individuals special giftings to help the body build itself up in love. But most critically, the church, the living stones themselves build one another up in love as each part does its work. We have a foreshadowing in Nehemiah of the church that God's going to remake a people and he's going to cause a people to do the work of building themselves up in love for his own glory before the nations. You know, that's a mighty church right there. A church where people recognize their gifts and their callings, every individual part.
matter how bruised and battered and brittle, each person realizes their purpose and function and puts their shoulder to it. That's a powerful church, a mighty church. And the more mighty the church becomes, the angrier the enemies of God grow. We should just get ready for it. The mightier the church, the angrier the enemies. Well, so what if the enemies of God are displeased? Why do we care? Why are we so obsessed with getting the acceptance of God's enemies? In the end, the enemies of God lose their confidence. They melt like butter, like kings, like governors, like Tobiah and Sanballat and and whoever else. The spiritual sellouts, like the nobles who aren't truly committed but hold on to the power, all these people become like channeled water in God's hands. Christ promised that if he builds the kingdom, uh, that that if... if, if, uh, we confess him as that his kingdom would prevail and that the gates of hell will not stand against it. The greatest work we're doing here isn't physical, although, yeah, we've got buildings and, and mortgages, and we're gonna we're gonna annihilate that mortgage. It's it's like a couple hundred thousand. Let's get it, let's get it off the table and stop worrying about, you know. Yeah, there's that aspect. But the work that we're doing is spiritual. It's building people living stones, building disciples. And all of us need to join in the most critical work here, right? This book is an invitation to us to be disruptors. Maybe you need to become a disruptor in your marriage and say, you know, the status quo of our marriage is unacceptable. And whether you're the husband, the wife, you need to be the servant of Christ first in your marriage. And maybe it's time to disrupt the status quo in your family. And to risk the displeasure of your children or the expectations of whoever in order to serve Christ. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Maybe it's time to be a disruptor in your workplace, in your school, in your institute, in your occupation, in your city, your neighborhood, your world, in this land, right? Maybe it's time to be a disruptor in the church of a church is sitting on its laurels and the the status quo has become so sacred that it's even more sacred than God's will and the Holy Scriptures themselves. And I mean, that's the truth. The status quo becomes so sacred and needs to be so protected that we'll jettison the whole counsel of God, the will of God, because we want to protect this. No. We need to become disruptors of the status quo and serve the work of Christ and to have conviction and say, God will prevail in my marriage, my family, my church, my work. He will prevail. The enemies, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We will prevail. We will come, let's build. People are waiting for you to say those words. Come, let's build. They're waiting for somebody to blink and take a step. What steps is God putting in front of you to take? Uh, Dear Father, we come and uh, we just marvel at the story we realize that the status quo is not your will, it's often ours. The trouble and disgrace isn't your plan for our lives, it's our consequence for selling out. You call us to be a holy people, a people belonging to you, a people that exist for the praise of your glory. You want us to be winning, you want us victorious, you want us powerful, you want us mighty, you want us mobilized as your people. Help us.
to step into those things. Strengthen us to take the steps and to say to others, come, let us rebuild. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.